Hi and welcome to the podcast. You're having tea with Alice. This week's episode is with Daniel Towns, who's an Australian comedian, a very thoughtful guy, a really interesting interlocutor. He's about to launch his stand-up special, which will be available for purchase now, so look it up once it's done. We spoke about death and suffering and conspiracy theories and... I just really enjoy talking to Dan. He's got a really interesting mind and his way of looking at the world is fascinating. So I hope you enjoy listening to it as much as I enjoy having the conversation. My show in Sydney on the 23rd of November is basically sold out. So that's it for me in Australia for this trip, I think. But stay tuned on Twitter at alliterative, A-L-I-T-E-R-A-T-I-V-E for any gigs that happen to pop up at the last minute. I'll put them up there or uh, just message me on the Patreon if you want to have a chat, or email me, alicerfraser at gmail.com. I'm, ha- I'm starting to think um, about changing the Patreon subscription levels, mainly because when the Amazon Prime special comes out in January, if it goes well, um, or if it sort of gets any profile, which it may or may not do, it may sync without a trace, but if it gets profile, it might become unmanageable, particularly the $25 level where I have a chat with you uh, every month if I get a a, a wash of subscribers. I may not. This may not be a problem, but that is something that I'm considering um, changing up the reward scheme or putting a a cap on the number of people who can sign up for those chats just because I think, you know, being realistic, I don't have infinite time in the day. And at the moment I speak to you and it's so wonderful and so manageable and I really enjoy it. It's a real... Um, bonus in my life. It makes my life better. But, um, you know, I can imagine a world in which that makes life impossible. So I would either kind of go to group chats or um, some other thing. So if you want to email me and let me know or message me on the Patreon, let me know what what how you'd like me to manage that, how you think I ought to manage it. I am open to suggestions I think the people who've already who are already on that level would obviously stay at that level, and anyway, these changes wouldn't happen until January. But I'm, I'm contemplating them and bringing you in on the loop of my contemplating them. That I think is all uh, at the moment. I will be in London at the Soho Theatre from the 16th of December doing Andy Zaltzman's um, end of year show, and that should be a lot of fun. And then there are gigs going into next year. Thank you so much to Ben Wren, who helped me edit the sound on this. There is a podcast coming out soon where there were two people in different countries and it, it, he did a great, he will do a great job of that as something that I couldn't really do on my own. So Ben Wren, round of applause for you. And I, I'm going to let you listen to the podcast, me talking Daniel Towns about everything from death onwards. If you do not like discussions of uh, death, uh, cancer, a family, um, these things, this may not be the podcast for you. It, it gets deep. I don't think it's grotesque or anything graphic, but it is, it's those subjects. And if those subjects make you squeamish or you don't feel like listening to them where you are right now, maybe put it off until later, until you're in a better place. That's it from me. I will see you next week. Thank you so much for listening. You're having tea with Alice. So, who are you and what are you drinking? I am Daniel Towns and I am drinking peppermint tea this time. I think last time I had a bit of a blend. Yeah, you had a a herbal blend. Yeah, and this time we're going with the peppermint, one of my favourites, one of the classics. (laughs) What have you been uh, thinking about recently? 
Um, well, just got a happy things and big uh, things. So we just got a puppy, so that's good. But also found out my mum has lung cancer. Oh. So that's not good. So yeah, hey, this is going to be an upbeat episode. <laughs> <everyone>. <laughs> so um, that's in. That's a lot. Is it advanced or is it an early stage? Uh, stage three B. So pretty much, there's only stage four left. Yeah. You know, but she's pretty upbeat. She's pretty good with it. You know, I think she expected there was something wrong, but it's been a pretty heavy. We've only known for like twelve days. I think they knew a little bit longer, but they did the parental thing of. Holding it back. Yeah, until yeah. they knew how far gone it was kind of thing. It's funny. As a kid, I'd get my school report and it would usually be a week, a week of my school report burning a hole in my bag before I would sit down and present it to my parents. So your teachers gave you your reports? Yes. Our parents got ours. Ah, oh, there you like go. Like a parent-teacher night. They trusted so us no, more. Oh, no, there was no way I could hide it. <laughs> like they'd come home from the parent-teacher nights. Like, all right, we need to talk about this. <laughs> well, yeah, maybe maybe they just didn't trust you with it, but I misused that trust and I would, I would give it to them eventually, but I would spend a week preparing myself. And then when your parents get old, they, I imagine, do much the same thing with... Yeah. Medical um, news, they decide how to drip feed it to you. Oh, it's just that instinct, I think, <laughs> of protecting their kids, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, but I, I mean, I said it to them straight away. Like, you don't need to. You don't need to. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, I want to know. But I, I get it as well. Like, I get why people do it. I think that's a really interesting thing, uh, figuring that out between yourselves. I know there are people who would rather not know. So, or, you know, if they. <sighs> I think it's a conversation you need to have, even if you're not sick, with the people who love you about how much they want to know and how much you want to know. So there's situations where you're very sick and if they were to be the person on hand, you know, would you want to be told if how long you had left to live? Oh, see, that's the thing. I don't know when it comes to myself. I mean, I'm pretty much... What, what's that spot? Yeah. Going to the doctors. So maybe I think I would want to know. Because I honestly, like with my mum, I, th- I think she's just relieved that she knew what it was. And like looking back over the years, like all the signs, like she's had bronchitis a few times and they always just put it down to a one-off. And it's like, oh, hang on, if we put this down and then pneumonia, like these are all, yeah, you know, things that are there, like in the lead up or when it's already there kind of thing. But the scary thing is with lung cancer and they never really detected before stage three or four. Like it didn't even show up on a chest x-ray. She had a chest x-ray and emphysema, she's got emphysema as well and that showed up, mm. but the cancer didn't. So they did more tests, like then they did the MRIs and the CAT scans and all that other stuff. And then that's when they found it. And then because I'm such a hypochondriac, I went to the doctor and I spoke to him about that, but I also said, look, I did 50 years worth of smoking in 15. <laughs> and he said, well, I'm not going to send you for a CAT scan because that's one year's worth of radiation in a day and I said all right so let's just <laughs> I don't know it's kind of um yeah like it's weird because me and my mum have talked about all that stuff before not cancer obviously but like mortality mm. you know like we've talked about that we're very similar we're very realistic you know whereas my dad and my brother are a bit more wishy-washy oh I think like I said to my dad like he didn't want to talk about it and I said to him look I respect that I said but we're gonna have to you know, and I know it's going to be hard for him. Yeah. Like my girlfriend's mom died of cancer and her mom said to her, look, it's going to be harder on you than it is on me because I'm going to be out of it. 
Yeah. Like you have to watch it. Yeah. You know? And I was like, oh, yeah. So. It's a thing talking to uh, doctors in the oncology ward and stuff about the treatments that are available and the treatment, the chances of success and all of this kind of thing. And they said it's the families who push for these really terrible, painful, invasive treatments. Yeah. A lot of the patients are kind of, you know, resigned, if not happy, but like resigned or more pragmatic about it. If it's only got an X percent chance, they, they don't want to do it. But because their families love them so much and don't want to lose them, they'll push them through these very terrible treatments. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and the doctors, they just give you the options and they leave it to you to choose, you know, because they can't say... Yeah. I recommend this. And well, then, also they, I mean, A, legal liabilities. Yeah, 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 yeah. And B, uh, the, everyone is different, which sounds like a really facile thing to say. But, you know, when they say a percentage chance, it doesn't, it doesn't really mean that much. It's a percentage chance of the whole population of people who have had this particular cancer and received this particular treatment. Yeah, it's just statistical in, data over time. In your case, it might be a 60% chance with yeah. all of your yeah, setup yeah, yeah, yeah. and all of your previous history. And in my case, it might be a 10% chance or a 100% chance that that medication is going to work on my system with that cancer. In the same way as, you know, you can give people the exact same diet, the exact same exercise, the exact same sun exposure, and they will die at different times. Yeah. Everyone is so individual that it becomes well i mean she's otherwise healthy as well like and the doctors can't believe it they're like so what you don't have high blood pressure you don't have high cholesterol you, you know like all those other things people her age would generally have because she's like 75 you know so she's in pretty good condition they said she's a good candidate for clinical trials but then you start looking into that and like 50 percent of people get the best current treatment and 50 percent get the new treatment and obviously no one knows what they're getting, so there's no bias in the results. Yeah. And it's like, oh, I wish there Is there a percentage of them who are getting a placebo or is that considered ethically they unsound? don't do placebos with cancer. That's really interesting. Yeah. Like when it's terminal, they don't use placebos. It's just the best current or the new treatment, which is built off the best current. I think they do placebos with... Other things than cancer. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. You know, those kind well, of things. Well, just because you'd feel furious if, if oh you... totally well like because initially i thought it was placebos and then she asked the doctor and they said yeah no not with because you know i'm straight down that google rabbit hole kind of thing it is interesting though and i looked into medical marijuana like more for the nausea because mm. she's quite thin yeah you know frail i would say is probably a better word at the minute uh, soda water with lemon was yeah. the one thing that worked for mum because it's a really apparently it's a really metallic taste in your mouth yeah right um and so soda water with lemon was the only thing that would really cut through that. Okay. In terms of just nausea. But even yeah, well that's that's the that's the one, isn't it? But even the medical stuff, like what you have to go through to get that, you know, like there's places there, but even doctors they have to go and do a specific course of study before they can even prescribe it. Yeah. And then even if you can get it, which she is a candidate for it, there's still the potential that a doctor will go, here's your script and it'll take three months to get it because they don't have the supply here because it comes in from overseas. Oh, interesting. From Yeah, probably from LA. Yeah, so they're bringing it in from other places and if they're at the end of the supply run and they don't have it, you know, they can't... They, you've got to wait. There's no way around it. I mean... I, I mean, I think at that stage, she's pretty much open to anything. Yeah. 
you know. If you I'll, get a prescription, you're a comedian. I'm sure you have friends who you could. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Look, it's not. Yeah, I, I mean, I could make it myself. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, it's not impossible. But then it's. And I said that, I said that to my mum. And she said, yeah, I don't want you to get in trouble. And I said, mum, I'm pretty sure, like, yeah, maybe by the police. But if I went to the court yeah. with it and said this is what it was for, you know, like I'm pretty sure it'd be okay. You know, it'd just be a day that I had to go to court, which I would do for something like that because yeah. I don't think I'd, I don't think I would. Well, know? even I mean, again, even the police, if you if the, if you catch a reasonable one. Yeah, well, that's the thing, though. Then know. again, I'm speaking with the perspective of someone who has an accent like this. I've never had any trouble with the police. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah, I think it would depend who you get, but I think they're more likely to do it. Even like, no, you wouldn't get a small amount. I mean, you wouldn't buy a pound either, but yeah. you know, you'd get enough to make a decent amount. But that's where it'd be dodgy because it's, it's still a black market thing, right? If you're doing it that way. But I'd rather the medicinal stuff anyway because at least it is made in a controlled environment. Like, dope in this country is like, you just don't know. Yeah. You just, it's not like LA or Canada or Amsterdam where it's like, all right, this was. You know, that pretty much is pharmaceutical stuff because it's grown, it's controlled, there's no pesticides, all that stuff, but who knows what they're doing here, you know? That's true. I mean, that is the argument for legalisation of drugs, right? Even dangerous drugs. Yeah, 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 of course. And it's ridiculous that it's still a conversation that people are having in, you know, 2019. Are you uh, sort of a social libertarian in that case? Oh, definitely. Like, it's just, I mean, it's harm reduction, isn't it? And like... Where do you fall on something like uh, meth being legalised? Oh, I don't know. Like, I mean, it would be good if some drugs just didn't exist. But yeah. at the end of the day, people are still going to do it. And if you, I mean, look what the injecting rooms did to King's Cross. Mm. You know, like you never used to be able to go up there. I wear thongs there now. <laughs> if, if I go there in the day, for whatever reason, I used to see a doctor there and I'd wear thongs. <laughs> you know, I would never do that 15 years ago or 20 years ago before that injecting room opened up because every back street just was full of needles. And as soon as they open that up, you know, people are doing it in a controlled environment. I mean, people are going to do it. It's the same with the pill testing at the music festivals or whatever. Like just by having the police there, people aren't going to throw their drugs away. They're just going to take them all at once. So it's just harm reduction. Like I think it should be done. And what, what interested me, did you see the results that came out of those pill tests that they did? No. Do you want to describe for people who are not Australian who are listening what the pill testing is? Well, it's just they test, you can, uh, I mean, I'm not, a, well, I don't know what procedure it is, but it basically just tells you what is in the MDMA or ecstasy. Yeah, so it's kind of a grassroots program to go to these festivals or places where people take a lot of drugs and give them the opportunity to test the drugs that they're going to take without getting them in trouble for having the drugs, right? Yeah, and you get to see what's actually in it. And what surprised me when the results came out, because I was expecting battery acid and, you know, paint thinner or whatever, it was all pharmaceutical drugs. Like the things that were cut with were pharmaceuticals. And then you look, I looked into the pharmaceuticals and it's like, oh, yeah, too much of this can cause, you know, like liver disease or fatalities and all that kind of stuff. And it's like, oh, is that why they didn't want the... Is that why they didn't want to do it? Because it did get tied back to pharmaceutical companies. Oh, that's interesting. That's a very uh, that's a very conspiracy-minded thing to think. Well, it isn't. It isn't because you got to like they've tested pills before. Yeah. So even before they've rolled it out, they would know what's in there because police have confiscated pills off people before. So surely, even if they haven't put the results out publicly, 
they would have tested them. So they would have known what the what they're using to do it with. Yeah. And then there was that part of me that was like, oh, is that why they don't want it out? You know? so, yeah, certainly any explanation that involves protecting someone's bottom line is a much more appealing explanation. Yeah. Um, I mean, when I say appealing, I mean appealing to me. It seems more, far more logical to me uh, when, people ex- when people think of things in, t- in those terms, just a bunch of people trying to get their mortgages paid rather than the idea of, you know, systems where people are all are all cackling behind closed doors yeah because i guarantee you the majority of the population would have thought it was battery acid and stuff like that mm. like no one would have assumed pharmaceuticals rat poison is the thing yeah, you always that one, hear. yeah rat poison or something yeah i guarantee you most people would have just assumed that's what it was Whereas again if you go back to the bottom line even if you're a small-time drug dealer you're not going to get very far if you're dealing rat poison well that's true too. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> like it's, yeah it's, that's very true but no, look, I definitely think it should be because it's just people are going to do it. You know, meth is an interesting question. Yeah, that's the question. I mean, that's, that's the one that gets me. That's a very interesting question because obviously you can see what it does. I think it's 27 out of 30 beds in rehab now are meth. Wow. Oh, it's a, you know, it's a, like it's cheap, it's nasty, it's... Well, that's the thing. You would have to provide a uh, commercial or publicly available option that was... Um, equally pleasant in terms of its um, good effects, well, but that wasn't to... as damaging in terms of its bad effects. Because no, no pharmacy or no any no organisation could, in good conscience, sell what meth actually is. But then they sell dexamphetamine and Ritalin and all those kind of things. Yeah, but those things don't make you bite holes in the side of your face. No, so I guess it's just going to come down to purity and like maybe milder. If they did it with that, it'd have to come down to the strength, because I think that's the problem with it as well. Is like people, well, they don't know what's in it, and they just do it so much. I read something that it triggers something in your brain that uh, like survival things, like breathing and whatever other heartbeat. <laughs> yeah, but that kind of stuff. So when people get on it and then they stop, like it flicks that, and they feel like they need it. Oh, like wow. A, like it's a survival thing. So it goes into that part of your brain yeah. that's like... Because I know um, someone who's older brother, like 40-something-year-old businessman, and he's ended up in rehab. Like he did it once at a party, and he was like, oh, that's pretty good. And then he did it again a week later, and then a week later, and then all of a sudden it was both nights on the weekend, and then three times a week, and then gradually just slipped into the abyss. Wow. You know, like... Oh, the, the advertising on that one scared me. Like, I don't like things up as anyway. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? But what, did you remember the advertising campaign, the drug that heroin users are afraid of? Oh, really? Like, that's that... what that was on every bus stop here. It was everywhere when it first came out. I was out. either not here or I just wasn't paying attention. Yeah, right. And I was like, well, if heroin people are scared of it, <laughs> like, it's got to be bad, you know? But it's surprising how many people do do it. I mean, you go to Perth, you go to WA, that's like Meth Central. Yeah. Or it feels like it. Oh, know. yeah, there was a big rash of it at the um, Perth Fringe World, the yeah. Fringe Festival there, which happens all through January, uh, a rash of performers being sort of mugged or attacked uh, really? at night, and that was attributed mainly to a sort of a meth, um, I would say epidemic, but last podcast I did was with Richard Glover, and he said he hates the term epidemic because it's always a sign that someone hasn't done their research, yeah. which I haven't, but... Um, but, I mean, you can see it. 
and I, I don't know like what I find is interesting as well like you want to talk, like talking about drugs like al- alcohol withdrawals you can die from but we know a couple of people in and around comedy that have done quite a bit of heroin in their lives are we talking about Greg Fleet <laughs> well yeah he's one yeah. of you know but yeah physically you can't see any toll you know like meth heads Oh, sorry, methamphetamine, people who abuse methamphetamine. You're trying to be politically <laughs> correct about... No, but, like, Jesus. alcoholics get, like, you know, their face puffs up and, like, they look... People that have heroin, they yeah, they look out of it when they're on it, but when they stop, like... Yeah, I think it... I feel like you can tell, though, when you talk to people who have been heavy drug users in the past, there's bits of their brain that have sort of had to be oh, rewired or, or shorted out or circuited around. Definitely, but I think the physical toll isn't... Isn't as obvious as other substances. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, like, yeah, I, I just find that fascinating. I mean, you look, it used to be a medication, right? And then they outlawed it. Same, I mean, cocaine. Did you see they're looking at using MDMA for uh, post-traumatic stress? Yes, I was working on this documentary for Audible on um, habit change. Yeah. And uh, with Ashram Pura, who's a neuroscientist and practicing neurologist, and he said this study that they'd done with MDMA for really bad PTSD yeah, yeah, yeah. was having like astonishing results with well, six six sessions. So the first two sessions you're just traditional talk therapy. The third session is a medicated one. I think the fourth session also, and then the fifth and sixth are talk talk therapy again. Yeah, right. So they bring up these like the, the the system of PTSD, which I understand imperfectly, but I have people who are close to me in my life who have had it. So I yeah. know at least that kind of level of it's, it's that you, you are reminded of this memory, whatever it is, this terrible thing, which might not have felt as terrible at the time, but it was a, you know, survival situation in one way or another. And then the memory puts your body back into that place. So that's what being triggered actually is. Like yeah. aside from getting annoyed on the internet. Yeah, yeah that's actually, a real trigger. <laughs> it's a real trigger. Your body goes back into this place. And I've seen it. It's not a pleasant thing to witness. Somebody is reacting to a situation as though they were in genuine danger. Yeah. And it's that's an intolerable way to live. We can't. We can't. Yeah, especially if you can't, if you never know when it's going to happen. Yeah. Or what's going to trip, like what will set you off. Yeah. You know, and it sort of. set it off rather. And it feeds on itself. Yeah. And then it becomes restrictive. And if you're living in a world where there are a lot of things that might trigger you, you can't, you can't operate. You, you can't, can't function. Live. You can't, yeah. And so these tests were done on people who'd had it for 20 years. Hang on. PTSD. PTSD yeah. for 20 years and severely affected. So they couldn't sleep. They had, you know. They couldn't hold down a job. They couldn't have a normal life. They couldn't maintain relationships. And I think it was, and this this is where I'm really pulling it out of my, I think it was like 70% of people uh, had a relief of their symptoms uh, two years later. Yeah, right. Well, I did say that I, I, I don't know the exact statistics either, but I did read that it was very good. And they're in stage three clinical trials, yeah. which is pretty much. So the, they, do the, they do the talk, they bring the memory up, then they bring you back in, they do the same memory yeah. with this dose of MDMA in whatever regulated amount it is, then you talk about the memory and what the MDMA does is it disconnects that emotional link. So you can talk about it without being thrown into the physical symptoms of it. And then if you do that, then it it rewires that memory loop. So when you think about that memory, because we always, 
all of our memories are memories of memories. Every time you bring up a memory, you're rewriting it yeah, yeah, yeah. as you go. So those sessions where they're doing it with MDMA and the emotional link-up is, isn't present are enough to give you enough separation that it doesn't throw you back. And then you can start moving on to... And then, obviously, you want ongoing therapy yeah, as yeah, you go, course, but it, it, yeah. it takes away that kind of horrible, crippling loop. Oh, I mean, I can see that, you know. Like, I, I, I did it when I was younger, and I can see MDMA. how... <laughs> you MDMA or you did PTSD? MDMA, <laughs> <laughs> like, you could see how it would, you know. I mean, the, 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 quite the first question I asked was, how can they patent this? Yeah. How can... That's not something that Pfizer or you know, one of the drug companies have come up with. This is something that's existed. And I think initially it was synthesised for something yeah. specifically and then it became illegal, like most did. And But how can any drug company paint that? So what is it going to be like, paracetamol, where they all make it? But yeah. they've just got to put it out under the head and all or, you know, head offend, <laughs> you know, like where everyone's got their own version of it or... Or is it, will it remain a controlled substance only to be used in clinical environments? Oh, look, I think, yeah, I think in Australia it would probably be something that you'd have to see a psychiatrist for and it would be prescribed like Xanax used to be or, you know, that you'd be on a register, all that kind of stuff where they have to ring up and get permission to give it to you kind of thing. But I just thought it was fascinating that that's something they're even looking at. Like it seems like in, at least in some cases they started, they're going back to old science. Yeah, well, they were doing experiments on that stuff in during the Cold War. They were doing it, you know, in the 60s and 70s. Scientists were genuinely researching these things. And then I don't, I'd have to look, look it up, but I don't know what the historical event was that made everyone so conservative about drug use. But Maybe it was a, I mean, maybe it did, I don't know either, but maybe it did just come down to money and patenting. Like when someone figured out they could make it in a bathtub. Like, you know, oh, hang on, all I need is this and a... Or whatever, because I mean, I think that amphetamine was made for a similar. It was for focus for fighter pilots. Yeah, you know, like a lot of the Japanese kamikaze pilots, they'd use it. You know, and it's just that stay alert. I mean, they still talk about it now. People use it, and then when they're absolutely, off- I used to work at a law firm. There was a there was a black market in um, Ritalin and amphetamines, yeah, right. and then. Uh, then along came these uh, neurotropic medications, which were seen as sort of more high tech and less potentially side effecty, less of an upper. So it felt less like taking a drug. And I know friends of mine at the law firm took um, modafinil and things like that, which are accessible with a prescription. Yeah. Um, you can get them for jet lag and things like that, but they're you know restricted substances. And I often think, I often wonder. I've I've always you know been terrified of altering my brain partly just because mum was sick, and I could see how easily you you know you can lose it. I just never wanted to take that risk. But if I had been on any of those drugs, I might still be at a law firm. You think? I wonder. Yeah, I don't know. Because I think sometimes that kind of you know pain is a signal from your body, right? And if whether it's psychological pain or physical pain, I'm not sure that the best. Uh, responses to medicate that pain away oh no I, I completely agree and this is coming from someone who's self-medicated for quite a while <laughs> but yeah like you're obviously better off experiencing things but then also I think some people especially in serious cases they need something like I've got a friend who's got like severe anxiety 
and he's just wringing his hands and just, you know, and like he's medicated now. And he said, he goes, man, it's a life changer. Oh, yeah. And he goes, it's changed my life. And I said, and you're okay with being medicated like indefinitely forever? And he's like, yeah. Like he goes, because my quality of life is so much better now. Oh, yeah. I'm not against, I don't, that's, you're, you're right to pull me up. I'm, I'm not oh, I'm against, not pulling your arm. Uh, I'm not against uh, prescription medication or under the, on the, under the advice of the doctor, I also don't think doctors know everything, and I do think some people are more on their own case than doctors could ever be. Oh, definitely. And I've seen it done sort of responsibly and well. I mean, you know, my I have a, a friend who had very bad OCD yeah. in response to some trauma, and she got medicated and then got off the medication. She had that pro- used that med- medication as a step in the process of getting better. And that was life changing for her. But that's so that, and that's that's where my thing is with them, because, um, and you can throw any mental illness in, not every, anyone in with it, but like say depression or OCD or anxiety. Like some people are happy to just take the pills forever, but I think they are more designed as a no, I've a said, step yeah, in the process. I've said I've said this before, and as you you know, I know you lean sort of vaguely towards. Well, not quite conspiracy theory thinking, but like there are other explanations for things that seem that they've been explained. It is a, often the explanation for something that it's the most money. Yeah. yeah. So if if you treated, you know, and, and some people have brain chemistry that is irreparable or just, you know, damaged in some way. But I think often it with things like depression, particularly if it's like situational depression, if you've just been working in a terrible situation for a while and it's damaged your mental health and you just can't get out of the rut, then getting a prescription for the medication that gives you the tools to then do the other things that work just as well, you know, things like exercise and good diet Mm. and sunlight and, you know, having some control over your life and seeing your friends, all of those things on paper and in studies work as well as medication again not for everyone everyone's yeah. their own system but you can't do those things if you're super depressed oh no no of course not so, I, I think i think they're definitely necessary but, but yeah i think um, i mean i don't know look obviously i'm not an expert on this kind of stuff but if it was me personally i would want to do it for as long as it took me to get up and on my feet and i wouldn't want it to be a forever thing yeah. Uh, but I can see how that, like I had a doctor put me on him when I was 21 mm. and I took him for six weeks and I just did not like the way I felt because I was just neutral. Mm. I was just like, yeah, straight across the center. There were no downs, but there were no ups either. And I asked him when he gave them to me, I said, are these addictive? And he said, no. And then I just stopped taking them. And like for about a week, I was getting like electric shocks. Like I could feel it in my body. You mm. know what I mean? And it's like, oh, that was, yeah. So I'm always wary I don't know. I just, when doctors say it's not addictive, the only time that, yeah, I don't know if that's just always the case because I don't know too many people that have been on them for a long time that have managed to stop easily and quickly without either weaning down. Like I know someone that used to take, you know, Effexor, the antidepressant. So it's a capsule and inside the capsule, there's like, there's just all these tiny little balls. Mm-hmm. Like with the medic, like it's not a powder. It's mm-hmm. these tiny little, like a ballroom, but yeah, you know yeah, what yeah. I mean? Tiny, yeah, tiny yeah. little ball pit in and a like, capsule form. <laughs> yeah, but when, when she was trying to come off them, like she was taking out one of the balls at a time. 
because she tried stopping straight away and she just couldn't. Wow. Like because of it was just so intense what it did to her. So she'd start and like she'd, so for, she'd take out one ball for a couple of days and then that was the dose and then it was two balls. And I even got to the point where it was just taking empty gelatin capsules just for the, I guess, the placebo yeah. of it. You know what I mean? But that was the process behind it, like to stop doing it. Yeah, wow. That's how, yeah. I mean, I went and saw the G, one, uh, one of the G, the GP that I see, he tried to, <laughs> like, he, he thought I had ADD, so he sent me to a psychiatrist and there was all these questionnaires before I even went in there, you know, like there's a hundred questions. I don't know if you've ever, but they ask you the same question. There was 20 questions. Yeah. Asked five different ways. Yeah. You know, and they're looking for consistencies and inconsistencies and all that kind of stuff in the results. And so I did all that before I went in there. Then I went and sat with him for like 90 minutes or six, whatever it was. And, you know, they're just trying to get in your head. And I, he said to me, he said, you're on the outside of the low end of the spectrum. That was like 36 out of 100. And 46 is the base. Mm-hmm. And then he still gave me a prescription for dexamphetamine. Wow. And I said to him, because this is the way my brain works, because if you go to a GP now, they can't be bought by drug companies. Like, so if you go to a GP, all you'll see on their desk is like a paracetamol pad or over-the-counter stuff. But specialists still can. Like, so they'll have the heavy-duty medications Mm. pad or whatever, you know. Mm. And um, so I started pushing him. I said, what about Ritalin? You know, because it's the same. Well, that's not the same, but they're similar and they're both used. And I just wanted to see what his take, because I said, because I've got friends that take Ritalin and they've said it's really good. They said dexamphetamine didn't work that well for them, blah, blah, blah. And I just wanted to see what he'd say. And he said, no, nope, I only prescribe dexamphetamine. All my patients are on dexamphetamine. That's the only one that I found consistently works. And in my head straight away, I was like, oh, okay, this guy is... He's, got, he's getting a kickback in Yeah, he's going way. to the Maldives once a year, <laughs> <laughs> you know, for a, for a conference that's funded by them or whatever. Yeah. You know, I just found it really interesting because as soon as he put it out there, I said, all right, well, what about this? And it wasn't even entertained as an option. That's really interesting. I think so. But that happened, and this is just all about money now. And this, because, I mean, at the end of the day, everyone's making a living, right? And, like, everything always comes back to, not everything, but money is usually tied up in things. Like, my partner's Canadian and she's been meeting with a financial advisor here because she's got some money to bring over you know she's got canadian dollars us dollars and she's just trying to find and she's been talking to this guy for quite a while and he came over and like he was there for about three hours and i I was there for the first hour of it and it was just a lot of talk a lot of talk and um he said do you have any questions like to her and she said no that all sounds you know and i said i got a question and he said what's that and I said, what is the advantage for her taking her money out of, like, the highest performing super fund? In a, like, because I was furiously Googling stuff as he was talking. You know what I mean? I said, what is the advantage to her? I mean, I, imagine being him. He probably thought you were just entertaining yourself and not paying attention. Oh, yeah, and he probably thought I was an idiot. You know, but I, and I said to him, I said, what's the advantage of her of taking her money out of the highest performing super fund in Australia over the last five years and putting it in one that hasn't even returned half of what that has, that has higher fees? She can do all the things that you've mentioned in her current super fund that she can with MLC. And 
there's higher transaction fees on everything she would do within within MLC. I said, where's the advantage? Well, what's the advantage for that? You know, and he didn't answer it. He spoke around it. I mean, speaking around it is a thing that financial people do. I, when I was working at the big law firm, one of, one of our clients was a big bank and they came in very kindly to give a presentation to the young lawyers, the graduate lawyers who were coming into this business where we, would, we had prospects of making an enormous amount of money or you know, a significant amount of money. Lawyers can earn a lot of money. Yeah, yeah. And they, it was a lunchtime talk that they gave for us, and it was a 70-minute talk. And at no point in that 70 minutes did they say money. <laughs> I, start, I noticed it after about five minutes, and I started counting the times that they used uh, euphemisms for money, wealth, assets, you know, mm. you know high-performing. It was amazing to me that they managed to talk about money for 70 minutes without ever saying the word well they can't guarantee anything and that's what i said to this guy i said look i said i was i was i was polite about it Mm. but and that's why i said what is the advantage to her i didn't do it in a way where i was i just wanted to see what he could say yeah you know and i said man i said like i said you got to get four percent return just to cover your fee i said then you've got to factor in inflation that's another three percent I said, the stock market, like, rises historically, like, 10% a year. Like, yeah, it goes up and down, but since its inception, it's been 10% a year. And about 10% of financial advisors beat the market. So, like, we're looking at 17% here that, like, to justify this, like, that's what the return would have to be to at least stay on track with the market, cover your fees and inflation. Mm. And he wasn't the happiest because <laughs> I don't think he knew like obviously he didn't think I knew what I was talking about and I'm messaging you know Andrew Wolf. yes I'm messaging him at the same time Andrew Wolf is a comedian an amazing comedian he is the person who I've seen do so incredibly well and so incredibly badly within three minutes of himself well he's all he's, he, I love his stuff but he's, oh, I love it it's too. so emotionally driven. Yeah. And I can tell when I see him before a gig kind of how it's going to go depending on the mood that he's in. He will lose faith in a joke halfway, halfway through, through a yeah. sentence. Just halfway through a word, you can see the air go out of him. It's an amazing thing to watch as a comedian. I think he's a comedian's favourite comedian. Oh, he's so good. But he's did so you, good. Did you know he's also like a stockbroker? Yes, I did. Okay. So <laughs> Which what? is amazing for someone so volatile on stage that he's like got this really res- allegedly responsible job. Well, I think it was probably a big part of the ups and downs because yeah. like he does day trade. It, oh, it's no. not just like managed funds and it's like, all right, this one, two weeks. You know, like it's like the, the this will be a double in two weeks or, you know, like it's like he does long-term stuff as well, obviously, but like he's constantly there. I, I don't know how he does it. I said to him, man, I don't know how you do this. Like you'd be better off learning how to count cards and play blackjack because at least the game doesn't change. Yeah. Like anything can affect how those results are going to be. But I was asking him questions and he said, oh, mate, if he's recommending like MLC, he goes, there's a kickback there. He goes, that's how this industry works. He goes, if that's what's happening, you know, and he goes, and that's the thing with superannuation funds. So like, they go, I've got a red bag, a green bag and an orange bag. What kind of risk do you want to take? Uh, medium? Oh, you're taking the orange bag. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> like it's, yeah, it's all. And he said, and then they just do what they want with your money anyway. Mm. You know? 
which I thought was quite interesting. But yeah, I just found it fascinating that he couldn't answer the question. And like I said to my girlfriend, I said, look, that was great tax advice. I said, but that's one move. Mm. Like with the money you have, like that's what he's looking at. Like the tax advice was great. Like there's nothing stopping you from taking all the advice that he gave you and just implementing it yourself. Like you don't have to do it actively. It was all passive stuff anyway that you could just do and not have to worry with insane fees. Yeah, it's a it's an interesting world. Do, are you used to being underestimated by people? Yeah, but I kind of like it. I like it with comedy too. You know what I mean? Like when people say, what do you want me to say in your intro? I'm like, I don't care what you say. Don't say anything. Yeah. Don't say I'm good. Tell them I'm bad. You know, like <laughs> under-promise, over de- <laughs> under-promise over deliver. That works better in Australia than it does in the UK. Oh, definitely. And I can see why in America they love the big, oh, this guy's been on this, she's been on this. She's, you know, like I, I get why some people want that, but I just, I've, I had it when I started. People would give you a big intro. Oh, this guy's new, he's really, and you get on and people are just sitting there with their arms folded going, oh, mate, prove it. Yeah. And you spend the first five minutes minutes burning all your best stuff to prove. just to prove it yeah. you know i'd rather go on where they have no expectation whatsoever and then you surprise them and they're like oh that's better than i thought <laughs> you know better than <laughs> yeah. i expected a great thing. thing for that uh, was when i was in new york and i was doing open mics but i'd also sometimes do sort of uh, mixed open night mics nights they had these nights that would like music and poetry and comedy and being the one comedian on a mixed bill, oof, that's very easy. It's yeah. very easy to get a laugh. Oh, what, when you're the... When you're the one comedian on a mixed bill of poets and musicians. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's a, that's a very sweet audience there. Well, I think it must be nice just being the different comedian too sometimes. Like yeah. And I've, the only place I've ever had that is Canada. Because in Australia, it's just like, oh, here he is. Well, also, you're very Australian no, as well. Another, another white guy, another white <laughs> Australian guy. And in England, they don't care. They're just like, well, we made you, you know. But in Canada, they're like... That's very true. I mean, there are disadvantages to being a female comedian, obvious and much spoken about. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But there is this advantage that is you are different. And sometimes, sometimes and particularly particular kinds of audiences, that's a bad thing. People who don't like differences, that's a bad thing out of the gate. But most of the time it's good. It gives you a fresh slate. And I have been, I had this moment, the first time I was on a bill with more than two women. So yeah. there were three women on the bill. It was almost 50-50, astonishingly. Yeah, almost 50-50. Collapse. I had this moment of going, oh, now I actually have to be good. Yeah, yeah, all oh, right, because <laughs> we're the only one. Like, just, and I, I wasn't pleased with that thought in myself. I was like, no, I should be really happy. We need to be at least 50% of every bill for there to be, like, no, of course. demographic representation. Whether, you know, whether that's realistic or not, given the world, I don't know. But until it's there, then it won't feel like too many women. Well, it's, it's good. I mean, it's good because it should be equal representation. But it's also good because if you start thinking like that, you're not relax. Not that you relax, but you can't relax. Because there's that competitive thing that kicks in that goes, oh, well, I've got to do as well or better than. Yeah. You know, because you want to be the best on Yes, and if you're, uh, it's a thing that I'm particularly guilty of, which is I put myself in a category of one, 
as much as possible. I don't like being grouped in with other people. I don't like being judged as a proxy for another for a group of people. I very much want to be taken on my own terms. Yeah. And that is partly because I think I am a different enough person that I should be taken on my own terms. But it is also partly don't 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 compare me to other people because I don't want to fail. I want to be in a kind of a weight class of my own. I mean, but the best people are the ones that do stay in their own lane. Yeah. They know what it is and they stay there. Yeah. You know, like, I mean, there's, I don't think there's anything wrong with comparing yourself. Everyone compares themselves to other people or what's happening with other people and all that kind of stuff. But I think the best people are the ones that, yeah, they know their lane and they stay in it. I or think, they make their own lane. I, I think genuinely, like, if you put all kind of political arguments aside, the best argument for having more than one woman on a bill is that then you have women who can watch other women. Comedy is such a discourse. You know, comedy only gets interesting when we're watching other people and going, oh, I don't want to do that. Oh, I have a joke about that. Now I have to dump that joke and write a better one. If you have only one woman on a bill, you'll have a lot of women talking about the same stuff yeah, um, and not growing and developing. But, I mean, it should be the case just because of population anyway. Yeah. I mean, that's like, well, the... It's not, you know, like, it's, <laughs> like it's, it's half the audience for starters, maybe more a yeah. lot of the time. And then once you factor in race and sexuality, like, of course, everyone should be represented in some way, shape or form on stage. Like if you're watching the same thing over and over again. Yeah, I think the fundamental thing is in in some way, shape or form because there's comedians that I see who I relate to who are not the same gender as me, not the same race as me, not the same age as me, not the same type as me. Hmm. Um, I don't think that's an argument against diversity on stage. I I am in myself an argument for diversity on stage. But... And I think it's an important thing. I also am kind of, oh, I don't know. I, I, I'm getting not sick of, but not entirely on board with some arguments about representation, which is this idea that we are so defined by what we are. Yeah, I can, I mean... And I don't think that's an argument against women on stage or people of many races on stage. No, I'm just thinking about what I'm going to say here because I don't want to put a foot wrong. (laughs) (laughs) You can't put a foot wrong. My audience are very lovely people. And if you do, we can always edit it out. I'm not going to say anything offensive because I'm all for it. I'm I'm also happy to have a fight if you want. (laughs) No, I'm, I'm definitely all for that kind of stuff. But then I can see how... But I guess when that's how you've been defined by other people your whole life, I guess it is just maybe it's just taking it back and going, yeah, that is who I am. That is what I am. I, I sort of think... I don't know. Like, I'm a stray white guy. Yeah, okay. This is why you don't feel like you have a right to opinion. But that's the thing. I think... But, like, I get it. Like, everyone should be treated equally. We're like, we all bleed. Yeah. Like, it doesn't okay. matter. Okay, first of all, of course, 100%, like... I don't think we need to play out the argument for diversity on stage because I, I, maybe we do, but I see that argument being made very well and I agree with it, mm. a lot of it, a lot yeah, of the yeah. time. But I also am sort of sick of this. I'm, I'm getting tired of the idea that you don't have to a right to the opinion, an opinion on this subject because of what you are. I think you're a very sharp mind. I'm interested to know what you think and how you think. I feel I feel frustrated when I am a representative of women on stage. I just want to be a representative, Alice. 
Until we get equality, I have to be in part a representative of women. Yeah, and you just want to be funny and do and the so job. And so we'll, cool, we'll get equality, maybe or maybe not, but, and that fight is going on and I'm part of that fight. But well, at the same time, I'm sick of being a representative. I just want to be well, maybe this is like who the, I am, not what I am. Well, maybe this is like the pioneer phase of it and it will get to a point like where people don't have to. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I guess you could look at ethnic comedy in Australia. Like there's mm. some people do it because they think that's what audiences want and expect. Yeah. And then there's other people that refuse to do it. Like Anthony Murr, I don't know if you ever knew of him. Yeah. Like he never discussed race. Yeah. Like it was clear that he wasn't a white Australian, but he never mentioned it. And he said, he goes, I just, that's not what I want to do. Yeah. You know, that's not what I want to do. I just want to be funny. So maybe it's, and I'm, uh, yeah, I don't know. This is, I mean, I know feminism and all that stuff has been around for a long time, but it's now it's, it's a, it's not going to stop this time. Yeah. Like I know it's always been there and I know it's always been bubbling under the surface. Yeah. You know what I mean? But the fire, it's not going to stop now till it is equal, you know? And I think like for, as a, I tried this as a bit on stage. Yeah. Right. For, like from the straight white male's perspective. Yeah. Because, you know, some guys are angry. Yeah. Like, you know, they're like, oh, they, they want what, what we've got and, you know, oh, they're, they're trying to be on top and all that kind of stuff. Like, I think, I don't think they're angry about people wanting equality. I think it's more they're angry at themselves that they didn't realise they had it so good for so long. And now that everything's becoming more... Well, everyone feels like their life is quite hard and you just yeah, can't exactly imagine it. it being any 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 worse. Because the first, like, honestly, and the only reason I came to that conclusion is because the first time I heard it. Yeah. When that idea was first kicked around, I was like, hang on, everyone's got problems. You know, like, no one's life is... And then I thought about it a little bit more and I went, yeah, but I've never had to walk down the street at night with my keys in between my knuckles. You know, I've never been harassed online. I've never yeah, had... Did you have my joke about that? Yeah. Like, I've never heard, had any of those, you know, I wasn't, people weren't writing my name above a PowerPoint, like, yeah. because I'm an Asian guy. Like, that's something someone did to someone in my primary school. Like, they wrote his name above the PowerPoint. What's the joke? Because of the eyes. Oh, you know what I mean? Like oh, I've never really? had, yeah. So like oh. I've never had it, and then I thought, oh, of course. Like yeah, like everyone's got problems, but like society is structured in a way where, you know, like things are a little easier. Yeah, you. I would so rather. I've never yeah. had to change my name for a job interview. Wouldn't I've we? Never... Wouldn't we rather that everyone's problems were just their own problems for being an asshole or having. Yeah. You know, having difficulty as a person rather than kind of having a difficult... I think, yeah, treating people as as people rather than as the class that they fall into or the category that they fall into, for me, is the ultimate goal. I'm wary of movements, even if maybe it's a necessary step towards my goal, <laughs> assuming my goal is the great goal and we shall agree with it, my goal that everyone should treat other people as the people that they are. Maybe it is a necessary step that we need to focus on what we are and how that affects the way we're treated, which is what is happening in at the moment. People are talking about what they are. You know, I'm a woman and hear me roar yeah. rather than I'm Alice and hear me roar. And also not everyone's as intelligent as everyone else. No, that's You know what true. I mean? So yeah. some people do need to be hit over the head with it. Like, But uh, then also to go back to your kind of thing about 
following the money. There are types of feminism that are doing very well at the moment and other types that are not doing so well. Really? Yeah, the type of feminism that goes, we need more female, female CEOs, we need more women in the workforce um, in various categories, that's doing very well. The one that says, why don't we value, you know, caring and empathy and the process of building and raising a human being and actually capitalism doesn't fully encompass the value of a mother or a woman or a, who chooses that path. That's not doing very well. Well, capitalism, I mean, it's... So the capitalism that ends up with more, like, sassy shoulder pads is doing very well. That's the feminism that seems to be most successful at the moment. Thriving. Yeah. Well, I think capitalism, I mean, everything... And I was going to say it earlier before when you said... I can't even remember what it was that you said, but, like, I think everyone's biggest strength is also their biggest weakness. Oh, I think that too. You know? It's the flip side. Yeah, yeah, like, so whatever it is that defines you, and people, oh, my, oh, I love that, that's the best thing. Like, that's also the thing that people are going to hate, mm. you know, and that's, and I think that's, and that's capitalism as well. Like, it, it is good, but it's also terrible yeah. because of what it does. Like, you look at, you know, like the money. Like, even Bill Gates said the other, like, he wouldn't answer the question if he'd vote for, what's it, Elizabeth Warren. Yeah. He wouldn't answer it. If it was Warren Trump, who would you vote for? He refused to answer. And like, you can't, come on, you got billions of dollars. Like I know $2 billion is a lot of money to pay in tax. Yeah. But not if you got multiple billions. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like it's still a slime. He's still going to be flying around in private jets. Like $2 yeah. billion to him is probably like 50 grand to you or me. Well, yeah, and no. this is the thing I think. Or less if comedians, <laughs> comedians as a class. Um, are not herd animals, I think. Yeah, and no, that's the great not. quality of comedians. I don't think a lot of comedians would have been Nazis. Um, but at the same time, we can't form a union, so none of us get paid properly. Well, someone will always do it cheaper. Yeah, like, because we don't have that kind of union unified mentality. We don't like to. But they also want the gig. Yeah. And like I get, I was new once. Yeah. You know what I mean? I wanted the gig. I wanted the stage time. And you just don't realise that, oh, by doing this, I'm contributing to, like, the wage going down. Well, it just hasn't, it hasn't, I think comedy, way, like, most rooms have either gone down or stayed the same since the 80s. But that's a lot of occupations, though, not yeah. just comedy. You know, I think we focus a lot on just us, but that's, like, I mean, yeah, it should be, I think it should be more. You know, of course <laughs> I do, but I think that's probably the same for a lot of people. Like, what do you think the problem is in Australia with, like the cost of housing, wages, like what's your solution there? Or do you have one? Have you thought about it? Like, I, I mean, feel like we're yes, in a recession I have, now. I've thought about it, but I, all of my solutions are untenable solutions. But. but what makes it, I mean, I don't know the answer either, but like the cost of living here is insane. We pay more for everything, you know, like how it, ANZ just put out 35-year home loans, which just means people are going to be in the hole five years longer and pay back even more interest. So it sounds appealing to people that want to get on the... But if you buy a place, it could be 70% of your income, like just going on the mortgage and the interest. Like, that's that's insane. Like, there's a ratio, the cost of living to housing, what it should and shouldn't be. And the last time I looked at it, like, Sydney was 9.8 to 1, and yeah. it shouldn't be more than 4.5. 
Yeah, I mean, that's that's the thing. I, I, I kind of... So here's, like, to take a step back into, into the feminist th- picture, you know, you have now men and women both in the workforce. So what happens is people pay one and a half times a wage to their house. That happens regularly. I know people who that they've done that to buy their house or to pay rent on a place. It's one whole income plus another half an income, and they live off the rest. The rest is for their food and, and necessities. And so that that is where I start to question feminism, <laughs> feminism's obsession with women in the workforce, which is still a fight. It's still an ongoing fight. It's a fight we haven't won, the idea that we should be able to do any job and we can do any job uh, as well as if slightly differently to a man in the same job. For the same money as well, actually. For be. the same money, yeah. yeah that they're, and that's a fight that still needs fighting. But if that fight is won, if everybody were free, if we could like take an alien eye view of the history of humankind with men in the workforce and women for the most part in the home, which was much more necessary pre-technological revolution. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, there was a lot more work to be done in the home. If you valued both of those kinds of work properly, what you're doing is you're seeing one half of the household making the money to support an incredibly valuable social enterprise. Yeah. And if if you frame it like that, as those two works, uh, status-wise, if you frame them as equal, of equal value... I mean, actually, in that instance, the the person in the workforce is worth slightly less because they're just funding the actually important work. Oh, of course, and also, like being a full time mother, like a stay at home mother, they reckon it's like two and a, the equivalent of two and a half full time jobs. Like, how many parents do you know that like are happy to go to work because they get a break? Like Heggy had that bit. Like, yeah. Heggy had that joke about if you sit a guy, see a guy sitting in a car. Just sitting there doing nothing. Do you think, oh, this guy's up to some shady shit or something? And he goes, no, it's probably just a parent. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's probably just a parent just enjoying some, you well, know. My twin brother is currently, I'm, I'm thinking about this because my brother is currently um, parenting. He's the stay-at-home yeah. uh, parent. And he's got a podcast now called the Man Mum Podcast. Yeah, right. That's a good I sent, idea. I sent him a tripod because the first one was just him lying in bed with his camera phone. Yeah, right. Um, and it's, it's really interesting. I mean, I think my brother is interesting because he's my brother. But just talking about these things from the perspective of an intelligent, educated person who's chosen the lifestyle, who isn't being sort of angled into it by politics and biology and the weird intersection of politics and biology, that this is the natural work that you should want to do. This is the work he's choosing to do. And it sort of casts it in that new light, in that kind of... Yeah, that is interesting. I'll tell you what, I'd gladly be a stay-at-home parent. That or go into an office every day? Are you kidding? <laughs> like, I, I know it's going to be hard. <laughs> I've seen it with a dog. You know, like, just in the last 10 days, I've seen it. Like, yeah. and a kid would be a million times harder. But the idea of just, oh, this is good, you get to bond. You're there for everything. You know, you're not missing stuff. Like, that or going to work for someone who just treats you as a number. Yeah. You know, like I'd, I'd, I'd love to do that. I mean, me and my partner, we've talked about Yeah, you'd about rather that. be someone's whole world than someone's accountant. Oh, we've talked about it. Because I think comedy is a good job for a stay-at-home parent anyway. I think it's Like if your good. partner works in the day, 
and they yeah. come home, you have a quick changeover. Like, what, you go out for two, three hours and you're home. Like, yeah. that's a pretty, and you can still, which you need in Sydney and a lot of Australians, you can have a dual income, you know, which is, that's where we're at now. That's kind of a two income thing. And I think that has a lot, I mean, that has, I mean, everyone wants careers, which is good. And people shouldn't be defined down to doing one thing. And then some people are happy. That's all they want. Like one of a girl I went to school with, all she wanted was a family and kids and she got married at 20. She's got like four kids now. And she... Yeah, I, I think the problem, I the problem with the fight for more women in the workforce, as a woman in the workforce, as a woman who wants a career, as a woman who is ambitious, we as people find it really hard to separate is from should. You know, if, if something is a certain way, we think it should be a certain way. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, totally. So this idea that we can have mostly, uh, say, for example, on the theory that men are better comedians than women, as a general rule, which I don't agree with. I desperately I disagree agree. with it. I, don't agree with that I think either. women are biologically better comedians than men. Um, I would but, say that the best of both are as good as each other. Yes. <laughs> I mean, it's a, it's a, I'm pulling it out because it's a, a statement with which I disagree, but I think that's it's it's a good, therefore it's a good example statement. Say all the guys who've ever told me that I can't be funny because I'm a woman are right. What they mean, what they would mean in that circumstance is that most women don't want to be comedians, most women aren't good comedians. But then when you have that outlier, that person who is a good comedian, why is that upsetting rather than interesting and cool? I think it's... Do you a, know what I mean? I think some people just get threatened by... It's, 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 they're just threatened by something that's different that they don't understand that doesn't fit to their view of how things should be. Yeah. You know, what they've learnt and come up with over or throughout their life from whoever's taught them, their parents, their friends, whatever, wherever they've taken this and grown this idea from it's probably because it doesn't conform with what they've been told so they see it and it's easier to just go well I didn't like it as opposed to maybe going hey maybe I was wrong and looking a little bit deeper into their own problems and prejudices with things generalizations I think generalizations are the problem Oh, look, if you want to get right down to it, people are the problem. Yep. Burn them all, burn, burn them all down. People, but you see, I don't know, like, it's, I, I just think it's empathy and, like, just, yeah, I mean, putting your, looking at things from another person's perspective. Like, it's, and some people just can't do that. You know, like, I've done it before. Like, I've worked on a cruise, you know, working on a cruise ship. The first time I was out there, I was like, this is... How can I be tra- How can I live like this? And yeah. then I went to my room and I said, you got to pull your head in. Like, no matter how rough you think this is for you, everyone that works out here full-time, they have got it so much harder. And you've actually got it pretty good comparatively. Like, this is just a sure thing. Just do it. You know? Like, yeah. but some people don't. They're just like, oh, I deserve this and I deserve this. You know? And it's like, no, yeah. man, get some perspective here. There's a bigger picture. I don't know. Some people just aren't good at looking out. Well, I have that snobbery um, myself of, you know, the kind of comedy I do is not as welcome here as it is in the UK. And I could have changed what I did to fit in better here, but I chose to run. Oh, you look, you can be a product of your environment or you can change your environment or you can stay in that environment and do what you want to do. Yeah. But then... 
then it's hard. There's a price. No, there is a price. And there's that price of, I mean, I've done it. Like when I first started and it took me a while and it's like, I don't want to talk about that. Yeah. I don't want to do that. Like I know that'll get it, but I don't want to do it. And like, I mean, I've said it to audiences lately when I've said something on stage and they haven't gone for it. And I've gone, oh, you're under the impression that I'm doing this for you. <laughs> like I'm at that point now. Like where it's like, no, this is for me. Like I do this for me. If you enjoy it, that's great. Yeah. Like I appreciate that. But what I'm going to talk about is what I want to talk about. Yeah. But it took me a long time to get to that point because I make jokes that, like, I look back. We all have, you know, and you go, oh, my God. Like, either it wasn't funny or it was just a bad idea or a bad take on something. And I look back and I go, eh. But now I'm just like, nah. And, you know, some things are harder sells on certain audiences. Like, I got a joke about male suicide. And the way I get to it, it just comes out so abruptly. And, like, people just kind of, oh, I didn't expect that yeah, yeah no but then the amount of times i've had someone come up to me and it's every time it's been an older woman like older like 60s you know and she's always come up to me and she goes hey, so what's our joke and i'm like oh she goes i think that's fantastic this is something that we need to raise awareness of you know like my nephew he killed himself he didn't have anyone to talk to he just bottled everything up like you said and i was just in my head i'm just oh thank god you know because it is a touchy subject yeah and i don't want to I have one with statistics in it and you have to figure out how to get there so you can say that thing, that thing, that shocking thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For me, the one that was um, that surprised me, it's usually things that surprise me that I'm that shocked me, it was um, the num- that there is a huge number of, that more women attempt suicide than men. Really? And more men achieve suicide. Yes, yeah. It's, yeah, yeah it's, are successful in their attempts. Yeah, right. Um, and I found that out from a, a friend of mine who's quite right-wing. That's interesting. And he said it's proof that men are better at getting shit done. Ugh. So it was a built-in joke and I wrote, I wrote, that, I wrote <laughs> the whole joke, the whole piece around that. But the piece that was really interesting to me was the actual, that statistic. That is interesting because I didn't know that. It's, um, the, it's the, the, traditionally uh, dif- the different sexes or use different methodologies. So women tend to, well, a couple of things that factor into the fact that women are less successful at suicide. Uh, women um, have closer friend networks and are often in closer contact with them. So they're more likely to have someone Find them. notice uh, or they're more yeah. likely to have told someone than men. Yeah. Uh, and they also tend to use uh, less violent means. So they will use either pills or they'll slit their wrists um, so less graphic and violent and aggressive means, whereas men are more likely to jump. hang themselves or shoot themselves in the face. Uh, I think both genders jump. Um, but I just and so that I mean that's interesting. And, no, that's very. But interesting. it's also horrifying. So how do you figure out how to put that into a joke so people who don't want to listen will listen and care and and laugh and therefore absorb what they've heard i think things like that just come down to the confidence like you've <laughs> got to know that the payoff is but when you're first trialing it out you don't know no like, you don't like, know this until is you've funny said it eight times this is funny to me but i don't know and then eventually i think you just get that confidence that like i know whether because now when i tell that joke i do have that confidence behind it mm. and in the end they go look i'm not going to bring up something so heavy without a without a light-hearted joke at the end of it 
you know, like I'm not an idiot. We're going somewhere. I've been doing this for a while, but I like now I enjoy the shock when I say it at the start. Not shock, just like, oh, I thought this was comedy. Yeah. What'd you say that word for? Yeah, because <laughs> that sudden shift in attention or the shift in the energy of the room. I, uh, I had a heckler at Manly Boat Shed last night, um, or the night before, um, Monday night. And um, it was just as I started to talk about predators in the industry and he came out with some sexual stuff. And he was, you know, maybe a 20-year-old boy with a sleeveless T-shirt. And I just said, mate, stick with me. And also don't heckle a woman on at the beginning of a joke about predators because you know every punchline is going to land on you. Yeah, <laughs> like, how did he take that? Uh, well, he took it as those boys normally do, which is he backed off and then... A measurable amount of time later, you, can, you they worked themselves back up again, and then he had another go. But that is so predictable, with particularly with that kind of young man. That's very predictable because it's a power play. So I just took him down again a, a few times, and it, it became, you know, became a feature of the thing. And then I found out he was staff at the venue. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, that's even worse then, because they should know better. It was a very, like, I'm back in Australia. So we started with death. We've ended with death. Um, yeah, just two different means. <laughs> <laughs> where can people find you online? Uh, just online Twitter. It's just Daniel Towns. Mm-hmm. Instagram is Daniel underscore Towns. And Facebook, Daniel Towns Comedy. Or there's also DanielTowns.com. I'll look um, it up. Yeah, all that stuff. All, all that the, stuff. All the usual avenues. Have you got a special available that people can buy I'm so they can see? I'm about to put one out. Like, Ooh. it was my ABC Next Gen one. I finally finished re-editing the the full version of it because oh. like 15 minutes got cut out for the broadcast yeah so I'll, that I'll, I'll put that I up i should have done week. that with i didn't do that but that's good yeah i'll be putting that up this week this week okay um tell me when you put it out this will come out when your special is out okay. so people can right, go the pressure's on me now people can go to your website um now as they finish the podcast and look up, what's it called? Uh, crash and Burn. Crash and Burn. Daniel Towns, Crash and Burn. Thank I you guess so it much is for now. having tea with me. Thanks for having me on again. Loudly rifle, doll, loudly rifle, day. 
On Monday morning when she comes in, she hangs her coat on the highest pin. Turns around for to view her frames, crying, damn you, doffers, cry up your ends. Lousy rifle doll, lousy rifle day. And when the boss, he looks round the door, tie your ends up, doffers, he will roar. Well, tie our ends up, we surely do, for Elsie Thompson, but not for you. Lally rifle doll, lally rifle day. Oh, Elsie Thompson is going away, is it tomorrow or yet today? We'll tie our ends up and leave our frames and wait for Elsie to return again. Lally rifle doll, lally rifle day.